0: Good morning church, if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me this morning to Mark chapter 5 as we continue to worship our risen Lord and Savior this morning. Mark chapter 5 verses 21 through 43. Mark 5 verses 21 through 43. I'm going to invite you to pray with me now. Gracious God, I just thank you for the opportunity to open your word this morning. As you have, we pray that you will Speak to our hearts as we continue to worship you through the teaching of your word. Pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Daniel and I were talking this week about a phrase that we're just not saying as much as we have uh, in the past couple of weeks, and that's the phrase that is, hurry up. Uh, we're just not saying hurry up as much as we normally would. Uh, one of the things about raising three boys that play baseball is we have this sort of daily routine where we're coming to the boys and saying, hurry up, get your, get your cleats, get your hats, uh, get your gloves, make sure you have your bat bags. Do you have your water bottles? What do you mean you can't find your hat? You have one thing that you're responsible for. Can you not keep up with your hat? So uh, Daniel and I were both saying that one of the things in these last five weeks that we're just not saying as much as we have in, in the previous months before is just that phrase, hurry up, Brush rush, rush. There's no doubt for many parents of uh, children that are involved with in a variety of extracurricular activities, there, there has been a reset. There has been a sense in which we're just not as, as busy as we once were. Uh, we miss baseball. We miss the practices you miss uh, as your children are missing some of those extracurricular activities. There's just no denying that, But there is something that is fairly refreshing about the calm a little bit, a little bit of a a personal reset, a lack of busyness, hurriedness. Maybe you're as a family walking around your neighborhood, riding bikes more, playing games more. Uh, There's no doubt that that's true. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I, I know that there are a lot of families, there's no doubt that are experiencing true sorrow and true grief and sickness. And in in no ways does this reset for families uh, undercut what is true sorrow, but both of these elements can be true. Uh, COVID-19 and this pandemic that has spread in our world, in our country has affected people on a lot of different levels. But for many families, one of the uh, primary ways that it has affected us is that we're just not saying hurry up as much as we've had uh, said in the past. And I think that's good in many ways, but I, I don't know if that translates spiritually, though. I think in many ways, while we might not be saying hurry up in our family lives as much as we've had in the past, I'm I'm kind of confident that we might be saying hurry up more spiritually. Uh, we're saying maybe in our prayer life, God, uh, you are sovereign and you are good, so why don't you hurry up and Uh, help uh, this world uh, breathe a sigh of relief from the spread of this pandemic. Why won't you hurry up and intervene in this situation here? Uh, There, in some respects, might be many of us, we might not verbalize this, but certainly internalize the emotion where we're wanting God's timetable to intersect a little bit more with our own expectations. And it very well may be that many of us are tempted this morning to say to God, hurry up. In Mark chapter 5, uh, verses 21 through 43, I'm not 100% positive that one of these characters said to God, hurry up, but I am pretty sure that there was a father who thought, Jesus, why don't you hurry up? Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43 tell us the story of two daughters, a tale of two daughters who intersect the the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now prior to this section in scripture, we have Jesus calming the storm in Mark chapter 4 that shows his authority over nature. Then we would come to Mark chapter 5. He heals a man, casting out demons, from this man, a legion of demons from this garrison man, and it shows his authority even over evil, even over the demonic. And then when we come to our section of scripture here this morning, Jesus has crossed over from the sea back to land. He lands and there's this huge crowd that meets him on the shore. Out of that crowd comes a dad named Jairus. Jairus was a ruler of a local synagogue, and he's a man of faith and he has an urgent request You see that request in chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Read it with me. And seeing him, that is Jairus seeing Jesus, he fell at Jesus' feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be made well and live." This is a father's worst nightmare, isn't it? He can't help her. He has enough faith, though, to turn to the only one that he knows that actually can help his sick and ailing daughter. So off they go. Jesus and this father they go with the disciples. Time is of the essence. They're pushing through the crowd. You can imagine this dad, Jairus. You can imagine him saying, Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. We have an emergency here. We've got to get through. We got to get through. The crowds are pressing in. And in the midst of Jesus going to heal Jairus' 12-year-old daughter, there is a nameless woman who, as long as Jairus's daughter has been alive for 12 years, she for 12 years has experienced the unthinkable, the hemorrhaging as a result of this disease that she has. And she has absolutely no prospect for a cure Chapter 5 verse 26 tells us that she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. So here's a woman nameless but we know much about her. She has suffered and she has suffered in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. We can imagine the constant sense fatigue certainly that she experienced, but she was destitute. She was destitute in the pursuit of a cure and she did not find that cure through all the doctors that she had gone to, all of those who who maybe promised that they could help her. Leviticus chapter 15 gives us another insight into the alienation that she would feel, how she would have felt to be an outcast in that society. She would have been isolated uh, ritually from her family and her friends because of her condition She would have been untouchable because if someone would have touched her, they would have become unclean. She was forbidden from worshiping in the synagogue in that first century world. So in all all ways that we can imagine, she is an outcast. But she has enough faith, doesn't she? She has enough faith to touch the hem of his garment, knowing that if she would just touch Jesus, she would be made well. And so you see the story. She pushes in close. She's unseen from behind. She reaches out and by faith she touches the hem of his garment and immediately 12 years of suffering comes to a halting end. It's a reversal. It's a reversal of the Levitical law. And instead of this woman touching Jesus and Jesus becoming unclean, she touches Jesus and His cleanness, His, his holiness ultimately heals her. It's a reversal. Jesus immediately says, who touched me? Now, you can imagine the disciples. I mean, they see this huge crowd and they're all looking around and they kind of think to themselves, oh, come on, Jesus. I mean, how, how can we tell you who touched you? I mean, do you see this vast crowd that is dying to get close to you here? We have no idea who touched you, but he insisted. He persisted. Who touched me? And then this meaningful poignant passage of scripture, we see this trembling woman fall at the feet of Jesus in verses 33 through 34. And she told him, the scripture tells us, she told him the whole truth. And Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. We don't know what her name was. She's nameless in our text. There was a 4th century church historian named Eusebius who tells us in his uh, early accounts of the Christian church that at Caesarea Philippi he had seen a bronze statue of this woman that commemorated her healing. Now, Eusebius tells us that her name was Veronica or Bernice. Uh, so you can choose that, Veronica or Bernice. We, we don't know. Jesus doesn't tell us her name, but notice what Jesus does tell us. He he tells us what he says in Mark's gospel. He called her daughter, this, this word of absolute endearment, absolute love. He, he stoops and he stops in the midst of the crowd, and he gives this unnamed woman what she needs the most, which is a new identity. No longer will she be known as an outcast. No longer will she be known as destitute. No longer will she be known by a diagnosis that no doctor could cure. No longer will she be defined by an ailment, but she now is defined by her encounter with Jesus. Mother Teresa set up with a vast array of nuns, what was called the Sisterhood of the Missionaries of Charity. In 133 countries, this Sisterhood was renowned for embracing the outcast, embracing those that oftentimes were terminally ill. They specialized in the lepers, they specialized in taking in those who were dying from HIV, AIDS. So here is someone who knew true outcast. Uh, they set up in their homes, they set up uh, soup kitchens, they set up medical clinics, they set up orphanages to be able to embrace the poor. And this is what Mother Teresa said, that we have drugs for people with diseases like leprosy. But these drugs cannot treat the disease of being unwanted. The sick and the poor, they suffer even more from rejection than material want." They suffer even more from rejection than material want. Here Jesus, he embraces a woman who for at least 12 years of her life was familiar with rejection for 12 years of her life, was familiar with being an outcast, familiar with being on the fringes of society. And notice what Jesus gives her. He notices her. He commends her. He reaches out to her. She receives a new lease on life because why? She receives a new identity in him. She is now a daughter to him. All of us... All of us in some way are like this unnamed woman. All of us in some way have a need beyond our ability to fix. We have a brokenness. We're like that children's drama. Humpty Dumpty set on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And so you and me, we have this brokenness the sin condition that, that all of the things of our society cannot put us back together again. And it expresses itself in a myriad of ways. Sometimes it's the loneliness that is so pervasive in our life. Sometimes it's the, the pride as we push out. Sometimes it's a addiction. Oftentimes it's idolatry. And we spend so much of our life apart from his love, and apart from his embrace when we're not children of God. And even as we become Christians, so many of us are still wrestling with the sin that so easily entangles us, that brokenness, and we want to be counted. We want to be noticed. And notice that that Jesus sees this woman. He counts her. He, he knows her deepest need and he, and he turns to her in this moment and she turns to Him and Jesus provides her in that moment with what her greatest need actually was, which is a relationship with Him. She becomes a daughter of the Most High King and so when we by faith trust Christ as our Savior and Lord, He meets us. He meets us in our, our destitute nature. He, he meets us in our alienation. He meets us as we're outcast from Him. And He embraces us and gives us what is our greatest need, which is an identity, a new relationship with Him. Now, we can imagine that this was a poignant moment. This was a powerful moment. But there's one person in the crowd that I can imagine that is saying, okay, hurry up, hurry up, Jesus, we've got to go, we've got to go. And that's this dad. You remember we started with the dad, Jairus? And here we go, he has the worst possible thing that happens. His friends come toward him and he can see them from a distance and they have the solemn look upon their face and they deliver the news that no father, no mother would ever want to hear and that that is his ailing daughter, his sick daughter is actually now dead. And you can imagine you can imagine him wailing up in this moment with, with frustration at Jesus. You can imagine him wanting to, to lash out at Jesus and say, if you would have just have hurried up. If you, if you weren't interrupted here and if you would have just come and, and done what I asked you to do and you said that you were going to do, you can imagine, couldn't you? The sense of desperation hopelessness. But notice what Jesus says in chapter 5 verse 36, do not fear, only believe. Powerful story, Jesus takes Peter, takes James and John, the disciples with him, pushes through the crowd, takes this grieving father and they go to their home and they they enter into the home and there's this, this cascade of mourners who are grieving and wailing and he shushes them. And he says, why why are you weeping? She's not dead, she's only asleep. And they just laugh at him. Who who is this person? They had been with her when she died, so they they knew. And he shoo's them out of the room. He brings the mother into the room where her daughter is lying lifelessly there. Brings the father in with him where she's lying lifelessly there. The disciples are there. And here's this 12-year-old girl. The chapter 5, verse 41 tells us that Jesus takes her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Numbers chapter 5 tells us that when you touch a Jewish person, when they touched a Corpse, when they touched a dead body, that they would be defiled. And this kind of gives us some insight into the parable of the Good Samaritan. This might be why the priest and the Levite go past the person who's lying, beaten, and in, in their mind maybe even dead on the side of the road here. No observant Jewish rabbi would intentionally defile themselves by touching a lifeless corpse, but just like moments before with that nameless woman, Jesus reverses the Levitical laws and He reverses the expectation. He doesn't become unclean by touching her dead body, but rather as He holds her hand, His holiness flows through her lifeless corpse and she experiences that resurrection healing. Here we see Jesus. Showing this mom and this dad, showing the disciples, showing those that would see this young girl that he has authority over nature. You remember? He calmed the raging sea. He has authority over the demonic and over evil. He cast out the legion of demons at the beginning of Mark chapter 5. And now as he resurrects this lifeless 12-year-old girl, he is showing this just billboard, this advertisement, I have authority. Even over death, I am the long-awaited Messiah. He says, get up. And she gets up and she walks around and her mom and dad are stunned. And, and I love the first thing that Jesus says, can someone go get her something to eat? I mean, it, I don't know. I wasn't there, but it just seems like Jesus says this with a chuckle. I mean, she, she is walking in their midst and Jesus says, can someone go get her a peanut butter and jelly sandwich here? And it's just this wonderful way of Jesus showing his authority even over death. It's a wonderful story. It actually is one of my favorite stories in all of the Gospels. And it teaches us this wonderful truth that I want you to hold on to in the midst of your life today. And that's this truth. What we think is a delay in God answering our request is never God ignoring our request. Let me just say that again. What we think is a delay in God answering our request is never God ignoring our request. Jairus has this immediate immediate pressing need. He has his own daughter and he says, come, Jesus, come now. And here is this sick woman who intersects. And and to this grieving father here, this father who says time is of the essence, this woman is an obstacle to his daughter's healing but not for Jesus, she is a divine interruption. It's an invitation to a divine encounter and God was working in the midst of what Jairus seems to think is a delay and interruption. And it's just a reminder that, that God's timing is perfect and it is providential. And maybe we need to be reminded of that because maybe you're watching here this morning and you're you're really struggling with God's timing. You're struggling with his providential, sovereign nature and then what you're experiencing in your own life. You're making requests to God. You're asking God to intervene for family members or asking him to intervene in a work situation, maybe asking him to intervene in marriage or a friend's life here. And you feel maybe... You feel maybe like the dad of Mark chapter 5. You feel maybe that Jesus is distracted by the needs of the vast crowd of humanity and he can't quite get to answering your request. Maybe you feel as if you're trying to say, hurry up, Jesus, hurry up, Jesus, come on now, come on now. But you need to be reminded that God is at work even when it seems like he is delayed. God is always at work in what seems to be the delays of our life. He stretches us, He conforms us, He molds us. He's working behind the scenes and He's working before us even in ways that we cannot even perceive this side of heaven. I love uh, the beginning of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. There is a scene in the movie where Frodo runs out to the entrance of the shire and he sort of impatiently greets the great wizard Gandalf and he says, you're late. And Gandalf looks down at Frodo and says, a wizard is never late, Frodo Baggins, nor is he early. He arrives perfectly when he means to. So it is for your life and my life. Know this morning, follower of God. Know this morning, son or daughter of the Most High King, that God is never late, nor is he early. He works in your life and in my life precisely when he means to. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you that your timing is a sovereign timing. That what seem to be delays are actually you working in ways that we cannot even begin to fathom. So in the midst of our finitude, in the midst of our doubt, and in the midst of our questioning, we say you are good and you are sovereign And we trust even when we do not understand your time. And we trust even when we feel at the very depth of our soul that we want to say, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. Help us, Lord. Give us faith as you stretch us and you mold us and you conform us to look more like you even when we do not understand your timetable. We pray this in the name of Jesus your Son and our Savior Jesus. Amen.